0: Ephesians chapter six. We we'll begin our reading this morning in verse eleven. Read through verse seventeen. We've been here, of course, for several weeks in this particular portion of the text. As we continue to make our way through our study of Ephesians chapter six this morning, beginning in verse eleven. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked." And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray this morning as we stand and pause these moments to open the Word of God and to proclaim its truth, that we might, again, have our attention and focus turned to Christ alone. Lord, may your Spirit use your Word to illuminate our hearts and our minds to the truth which we've read and we will study this morning. I pray, Father, that as Christ is revealed in His Word, that we might have discernment that we might have understanding, and Lord, that we would not be uh, tossed about as those who have no anchor, of those, as those who are not rooted and grounded, but may your word do its work in every heart and life. We thank you for this provision that you've made for us in Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and thank you, Lord, that you have not only redeemed us, not only saved us, but that you have called us to yourself, sanctified us, justified us, reconciled us, and Father, Now, as well, we look forward to the day in which you will glorify us in eternity. And so, Father, through the journey of this life which we walk and live, I pray that we would rest and trust totally upon your provision, that we would appropriate the provision you've made for us, even as Paul commands within this text. And this morning, may every heart and soul be uh, turned unto our Lord Jesus and his sufficiency. And, Father, we do ask this morning that the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart, would be pleasing in your sight, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen. As I have pointed out over the past several weeks, for those who, of course, have been with us in this study uh, through Ephesians in this particular portion of the text, as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be aware of a truth, and that is that we are engaged in a spiritual war which we cannot avoid. And so this is not a war that we have to go out and attempt to find a fight in which we fight or have a battle but we are engaged in a war that is it's unavoidable. It's not possible for us to not be engaged in this war as believers in Jesus Christ. And this war, as we've seen over the past several weeks, we see that this, these battles that we are confronted with on a regular daily basis takes, uh, takes place on two major fronts. First of all, there are the attacks which we face within are from within. In James chapter 1, verses 13-15, through 15, we read, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. Here's this battle that's taking place within. Man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death. So we see here that James makes it clear that this is a, a battle that's taking place within, because men sin whenever they are drawn away of their own lust. The temptation is out there, but yet it's the lust of the sinful flesh that is drawn to this temptation, drawn to sin. Also, Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Paul wrote, This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So here we find this contrast already provided here in this verse. He goes on to say, "...for the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would." Notice he says here again that the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And what Paul is saying here, just to clarify, he's saying that the flesh... Now, he's not talking about your physical body in this particular context. He's talking about your sinful fleshly nature, the sin nature that resides within you. And he's saying that the flesh, the sinful nature, lusteth against the Spirit... Well, not only do we who are believers in Christ have a sinful, fleshly nature within us, but we also have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. And the term Paul uses when he says, "...lusteth against the Spirit," literally means that the flesh desires to take control over that to which it has no right." And what is being spoken of here is your body. And so he's saying, the sinful fleshly nature you possess in you desires to control your physical body in which you live, which belongs not to the flesh nor to you. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Know you not that you're bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. And so the flesh desires to take control over that to which it has no rightful claim. The sinful flesh wants to control your body, and that is the problem we face on a daily basis from within. But then there are also, second, there are attacks we face from without. Ephesians six eleven through 12. We see where Paul writes, as we've read uh, previously in our previous studies. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Also 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So here we're told by Peter, we're told by Paul, that of course there is this battle, this attack from without. Jesus even said to Peter, whenever he was speaking of establishing his church, he said, thou art Peter upon this rock upon me. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So there's a constant attack that is taking place from without for the child of God. But we must remember something, too. We've seen and discovered the past several weeks of, this, of our study in Ephesians. And it's simply this, that this is not a personal attack. You, and you, you should never take it that way. The attack against, is not against Truman Blankenship. The attack is against Christ who dwells in me and the gospel upon which I stand. The attack is against the faith that Christ has given me, the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. The attack is against the kingdom of God being eternally established and realized, though it is eternally established, being realized as eternally established. The point is the attack is not personal, but yet we experience it in a personal manner. But the attack is much bigger. The war is not about us. The attack is not about us. It's about the gospel and it's about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about the truth of the faith of God, which He has established us within. And so this is the attack that we face. But we must understand as well, that as Paul states even in Ephesians 6, and, we, and we've dealt with this already, but just briefly again reminding you, we must understand and remember that we are not fighting for victory. That is not what's happening here. But we are fighting from a position of victory. We stand from a position of already having been made victors in Jesus Christ. And so then the question might be asked, if that is true, then why does Paul say to put on the whole armor of God? If that is true, why does Paul say stand? Well, we stand in the victory that's already been provided. And here's what we must realize. The armor that's been provided, and we'll look more into this in a moment, but the armor that's been provided by God for the battles which we face on a daily basis is not a means for us to go win and gain some victory, but rather God has provided it as a means by which we might realize on a daily basis in the face of daily conflict that victory that's already been provided in Jesus Christ. So God is not equipping us to go win a fight has won the war, but he has given us this provision to appropriate as believers in Christ that we might experience daily the victory that's already been provided. And so never come to this text looking at it as though this is a provision for you to go win some fight. You will never win a spiritual fight, but God's already won for us. So appropriate that provision, and we're going to see that in the text further as we go through. Within this portion of his exhortation concerning the spiritual attacks we face, Paul emphasizes the importance of the position which God has given us by instructing the believer to stand. I explained during our past several studies that the phrase to stand is an infinitive or a verbal noun as it's known in English grammar. And the use of this infinitive in the verse conveys both a position and an action. Because again, a verbal noun is a word or a or a phrase, to stand, which is not a noun, neither is it a verb, but yet it possesses both noun and verb characteristics. And so the 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 infinitive Paul uses to stand, having an all to stand stand, therefore. So he says having an all to stand emphasizes both the position, the noun aspect of this truth, and also the verbal part, the verb aspect, which is The action of standing. So Paul is pointing us to the truth that we are called to maintain the position we have been given. Remember, chapters 1 through 3, I've said this, I don't know how many times through our study in the past year plus we've been in Ephesians, that the first three chapters of this book, this epistle, are all about our position in Jesus Christ. You are in Him, in the Beloved. In Christ. Over and over, Paul expounds upon that truth. Chapters 4 through 6 are all practical. And Paul is now teaching not we are in Christ, as in chapters 1 through 3, but now in chapters 4 through 6, he's explaining what it looks like for Christ to be in us. For Christ to live his life in us as we are embracing our position in him. And so we see that we've been given this position in Jesus Christ. And now in chapter 6, Paul is saying, stand. Stand in the truth of the position you've been given in Christ. And again, I say to you, though most of you are, are already aware of this truth, it, you should never go to chapter 6 and try to understand chapter 6 without having a true understanding of chapters 1 through 3. Because you're going to misapply, misappropriate this entire text and totally miss the point. This is not, again, about you putting on some armor so you can go fight and you can win a battle. no. This is about you realizing the victory is already yours in Christ and living in the truth of the position God's given you in Christ and experiencing on a daily basis the victory that is already yours in him. Uh, Listen, if you think you're going to go win some spiritual war, you've already lost. But if you stand in the truth of what Christ has already done, you're victorious because he is our victory. Verses 10 and 11. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, the imperative to put on, which is a command, means to dress or to clothe. And I've told you over the past several weeks, the believer should view the armor of God as a daily routine, such as one clothing himself. God has not provided this provision of armor for us so we can gain a victory again, but he's given us this armor that we might experience that daily victory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And... We see to dress or to clothe when he says to put on. It should be just as normal a practice to live in the truth of the provision of Jesus Christ spiritually as a believer as it is for you to physically get up every morning and put your clothes on. This is not something God has provided for us, as I've mentioned last week, that we have in some closet somewhere in our lives. And, oh, I may have a battle today, so let me go get some armor. No, this is to be put on. We are to clothe ourselves in Christ. That's what Paul is literally saying here. And so it's not something that we are to view as though God's given us this arsenal that we have stashed away somewhere, and there may be an occasion upon which I need to go appropriate this provision. Oh, there may be a day in which I need truth. There may be a day in which I need some righteousness. There may be a day in which I need the gospel of peace. There may be a day in which I need uh, salvation. Are you following? That's not at all what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, here's the provision put on daily basis. And again, I ask you... Who could be so arrogant as to stand up here today and say, oh, well, well, there's been a few days in my life I've not needed the truth. There's been a few days in my life I've not needed the gospel. There's been a few days in my life I've not needed the righteousness of Christ. There's been a few days in my life I've not needed salvation. Are you saying this? Paul is saying this is a daily provision for a daily need that has already been provided in Jesus Christ. So it should be just as customary, natural practice for us to put on this provision, appropriate this provision, Daily, as we are considering it, or as we would consider it to be getting dressed on a daily basis in a physical sense. And by the way, we dress appropriate to the occasion. Might I say to you, God has equipped us with what is spiritually needed, appropriate for the occasion on a daily basis. So to put on the armor, as we saw last week, is really to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 13, the same apostle Paul wrote this, verse 12, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying. But then he says in verse 14, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. This armor is not an addition to God's provision in Jesus. Neither is is it an addition to salvation that we have received. This armor is God's provision in Jesus Christ. So this isn't again something apart from Jesus that we're to take a hold of. This isn't something we're adding to our salvation. This isn't something we're adding so that we might have victory today. This is literally to put on the armor, is literally to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, let me say it like this. Paul is saying to us, or to the Ephesians, which we can understand as well, we need desperately. He is saying there's not a moment in your life that you do not need to clothe yourself in the reality of the truth and position God has given you in Jesus Christ. He's saying, live in Jesus, rest in Jesus, experience victory in Jesus. So this armor is God's provision. In other words, Paul said, we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is Jesus who is this armor of light, as he declares in Romans chapter 13. Last week we saw the reason we must appropriate God's provision for us in spiritual warfare. In chapter 6, verse 12, Paul said, for we wrestle not. Against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In his epistle to the church at Corinth, Paul reiterated this truth in 2 Corinthians 10.3 when he said, For we though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Then we saw the power of the armor which God has provided. Not, obviously, the reason we must appropriate this is because this isn't a physical battle we're in. This, these are spiritual matters. But then the power of this armor it, we find as well. In verse 10, Paul said, Finally, my brethren, of chapter 6 of Ephesians, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6, again, Paul addresses this matter when he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against Christ or the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So since this is not a physical battle, we must rely upon the Lord's provision for us. And what is that provision? He said that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That speaks of fortresses, casting down imaginations. That's the philosophies of men that would would work against the gospel of Jesus Christ, pulling down everything that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now again, Paul is not writing this to your specific conflicts that you face as an individual. He's writing this generally to this church saying, listen, the provision of God in Christ the gospel is the only sufficient thing, the only powerful enough weapon, the only powerful enough provision by which God breaks down all the worldly barriers, by which God breaks down man's arrogant exaltation of himself and of his understanding, false understanding of how things are or how they may be. And he says it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that the power of the gospel breaks down and tears down and brings to submission and obedience all things unto Christ. Now, you may say, well, then why is there so much wickedness in the world? Well, let me just remind you of this one truth. The day will arrive in which every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So everyone will be brought to submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It shall happen. So this morning, we examine, in part at least, this armor which Paul describes in this passage. Chapter 6, verses 13-17, through 17, we've read that this morning. And within this text, Paul commands that we maintain the position God has given by describing God's provision of the armor in which we stand. Notice what he says. He says, first of all, we stand in truth. Remember, having an all to stand, stand therefore. And then he says, How are we stand with our loins girt about with truth. And so we stand in truth, verse 14. Also, we stand in righteousness, verse 14, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. We stand in the gospel. The good news of peace, verse 15. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We stand in faith, verse 16. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. We stand in salvation, verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. And we stand on the word of God, verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now notice with me. It's important that we recognize, as I mentioned last week as well, the order which Paul listed this armor which he has provided, which God has provided. Paul begins with the command that we are to stand supported in truth and concludes the list of the armor with the sword of the Spirit, defining it as the Word of God, which of course is truth. So this order is significant in that everything Paul listed in this text is sandwiched by truth. Stand, having done all to stand. Stand therefore. Stand how? with your loin girded about with truth. So what he's saying is you're standing, but you're supported in truth. And then he goes on to say, we stand in righteousness. We stand in the peace of God through the gospel. We stand on God's word, which is truth. Since Paul summarized this armor in Romans as the armor of light, which we just read in Romans a moment ago. Remember he said, put on the armor of light. This is what he's talking about. And then he summarized that even more so and said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is Jesus Christ who is the armor of light. It is Jesus Christ who is God's provision of everything Paul lists in chapter 6 of Ephesians. Again, I'm afraid that many people look at this text and they view it as though, okay, I have Jesus, now I need, I need this. No, you have Christ. You have this armor because you have him. And again, Ephesians 1.3 establishes all this truth, if you recall with me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath, which has blessed us with all Spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have all spiritual blessings in Christ. We lack nothing. Because Christ is everything. So Paul says, put on the armor of light. Summarizing this armor in Ephesians 6 in his epistle to the Romans. Then he followed that command with, put on the Lord Jesus. So it's only logical that Paul would list truth as both the first and last element of the armor in which we stand, for Jesus himself declared that he is the truth. Remember John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we are commanded to stand in truth. So what does this mean? Look at verse 14 with me. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. I've said this for years now, I've taught my children this, my family, I've said this, truth trumps everything. Truth is all important. As we've been studying through 1 John and Wednesday evening Bible studies, I've said to you, made this statement, which sounds really odd when I first stated It does, but the truth remains. That we are to love truth more than we are to love everything. Hence, I even love truth more than I love my family. Now, you, you hear that and people go, oh, wait a minute. No, listen, I'll explain it to you and you'll, you'll have to agree. First of all, did not Jesus say, except a man hate his father and mother, he cannot be my disciple? You remember that? Well, he's not talking about despising them, of course. That's not what he's speaking of. And let me show you where this really, rubber, the rubber meets the road here. If I love my family more than truth, that means I will sacrifice truth for my family. But if I love truth more than anything, that means I will lead my family in truth. I will correct my family in truth. I will instruct my family in truth. Are you seeing it now? But if we're willing to sacrifice truth for family, that means we love our family more than we love the truth. So truth is paramount. Truth is all important. And in reality, it is this truth that is required for all the other elements of this armor to authentically Exist. Let me explain it further, because if this armor is God's provision of Christ and in Christ, then let me ask you this. No matter what Jesus said or no matter what Jesus did, if Jesus is not truth, nothing else matters. Right? So if he's not truth, then it doesn't matter what he did. If he's not truth, it doesn't matter what he claimed. So truth is paramount. In other words, without truth, there is no true righteousness. Without truth, there is no true gospel. Without truth, there is no true faith. Without truth, there is no true salvation. So everything listed here is surrounded by truth because truth is paramount. This is the foundation upon which we stand. Paul's statement, loins are girded means to be ready or prepared. So Paul is commanding that the Ephesian believers be ready and prepared in truth. This means that they must be familiar with truth. It means they must know truth. It means they must understand truth. And it means they must live in the truth. I've said to you before, even in our Wednesday evening study through 1 John, with the evidences of fellowship with God and the test that John provides, that we need to be aware that a knowledge of truth is not The evidence, the knowledge of truth is not the evidence of one's love for truth. Knowledge puffeth up, as Scripture tells us. So for someone to say, I love truth, well, that's great. For someone to know a lot of truth, that's great. But hear me, the life that is not being transformed by the truth, then that will only become an arrogant, proud individual that knows a lot of things and yet has no submission to the truth which he knows. And so to be, to have loins girt about with truth, it means that we are to be ready, we are to be prepared, and we are to know the truth, understand the truth, we are to live in the truth. And this command prompts the age-old question, what is truth? This question was one which was asked in Scripture in John 18, 33-38. Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, art thou king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, "'Sayest thou this thing of thyself, "'or did others tell it of thee of me?' "'Pilate answered, "'Am I a Jew? "'Thine own nation and thyself, "'the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. "'Which hast thou done?' "'Or what hast thou done?' "'Jesus answered, "'My kingdom is not of this world. "'If my kingdom were of this world, "'then would my servants fight, "'that I should not be delivered to the Jews. "'But now is my kingdom not from hence. "'Pilate therefore said unto him, "'Art thou a king then?' "'Jesus answered, "'Thou sayest that I am a king.' To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. one that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them, I find in him no fault at all. It is the statement of our Lord Jesus Christ that prompts Pilate to ask this all-important question, What is truth? Again, verses 37 to 38. To this end was I born, Jesus said, and for this cause came I into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate saith unto him, what is truth? So it is this statement itself in which we find the answer to Pilate's question even before it was asked. This is truth. Jesus said he was sent into the world for the purpose to bear witness unto the truth. Verse 37. To this end was I born... And for this cause came out into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Jesus Christ is truth in the flesh. He is the truth of God personified. Jesus bears witness of the truth of who God is. And for it was Jesus who told his disciples that if they had seen him, Jesus, they had also seen who? The Father. He is the personification of truth. He came to bear witness of truth. But what is truth? God the Father is truth. Jesus the Son is truth. The Holy Spirit is truth. And he's saying, I came for this purpose to bear witness of the truth. Jesus also came to bear witness of the truth of man's need for redemption. John three, 3 seventeen and 18. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus came also to bear witness of the truth of the Father's love. 1 John 4, 9. And this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. John 3, 16. You all know this verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So this is truth. All who are of the truth hear and know the truth, Jesus went on to tell Pilate. Verse 37. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice the word heareth here as used in this verse means to understand jesus explained this to the religious people of his day john 8 47 he that is of god heareth god's words ye therefore hear them not because ye are not of god in john 10 27 jesus said my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me and when he says here in these texts he's not just saying oh they're able to audibly receive something that is stated he is saying that he that is of God understandeth God's words. You do not understand them because you're not of God, he said. Then he said, my sheep, hear my, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep understand my voice. I know them, they follow me. John also testified of this truth in his epistle. Again, when he says we are of God, 1 John 4, 6. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby we know, are we the... Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John again testifies and says that if we know God then we hear him, we understand him and his truth. Third, this is truth. There is no fault in him. Pilate goes on to say in verse 38. What is truth? And when he had said this he went out again unto the Jews and said unto them I find in him no fault at all. Look at the irony here. Oh, what is truth? And then Pilate himself declares, this man is righteous. This man is guiltless. This man is sinless. I can find nothing wrong with him. And so Pilate himself says, what is truth? And then he goes out and testifies of the very truth, which he questioned. Might I say to you, it's interesting, is it not? Pilate stood face to face with the very personification of truth, God in the flesh in his Son, and yet ask the question, what is truth? But hear me, we say, oh, how could that be? How could Pilate not understand? How could Pilate not see? How could Pilate not realize that the very one who stood in front of him, that this is the very truth of God in the flesh? How could he not know that? Well, let me ask you a question. Just as Pilate, is it not so today that men are faced with the absolute truth of God and yet never come to understand what truth is? When the gospel is proclaimed, this is truth of who Jesus is and men never understand. Those who sit in church, churches this morning will hear some places, will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and hear the truth of God's word, face to face with the truth, the very person of the Son of God, and yet never understand. Pilate says, I find no fault in him. The people who witnessed the miracles as Jesus declared in Mark 7:37, He hath done all things well. The one thief on the cross said to the other in Luke 23, 40 and 41, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. Here's what's being st- stated here. This is truth. Jesus says in verse 37. Of John 18. That he was sent into the world for the purpose to bear witness unto the truth. This is truth. All who are of the truth hear and understand know the truth. This is truth. There is no fault in him as Pilate declared. I find no fault in him. He is righteous. He is sinless. He is truly the Son of God. Jesus is the Christ. He is perfect. He is blameless. He is the righteous Son of God. So we are to stand in the truth of who Jesus is. That's what I'm wanting you to see this morning. When Paul says, stand, having an all to stand, stand therefore. Stand, having your loins girt about in truth. What Paul is saying is, we stand in the truth of Jesus Christ. We stand in the truth of why God sent His Son. We stand in the truth of who the Word of God declares Him to be. We stand in the truth that He is God in the flesh. And we stand prepared, here my pulse starts here. No matter what the attack is, no matter what the conflict is, no matter how fierce the battle may rage, we stand in victory because we stand in the position of having been provided the Lord Jesus Christ, who is truth, the very Son of God, truth personified, truth in the flesh. And therefore, no matter what we face as believers in Jesus Christ for the sake and cause of the gospel, as believers in Jesus Christ, we stand victorious because we stand in the truth of who Jesus Christ is. We stand in the truth of what He has done. We stand in the truth of what His Word declares Him to be. So the command to stand, therefore, having your lorings go about with truth is a command to be prepared in the truth and supported in the truth of who Jesus is, our position in Him, and His work in us. But now let me finish and conclude with this. If we are to be genuinely prepared in truth, we must take then Paul's charge to Timothy seriously. 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul said, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How do we know who Jesus is? His word. But so do we only know that he's he's and I say this understand the context in which I'm about to make the statement. So is he I know he's savior, but is he only savior? Is he only savior? I know he's lord, but is it just he's only lord? I know he's God's provision on my behalf for my sin. I know that God sent him, but is that all No, listen. The spirit of God as Jesus declared God sent His Spirit into the world for the believer to what? To teach us in all truth, to guide us into all truth, to remind us of all truth. Are you following? Remember this? And we grow in our knowledge of God and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we grow in the truth of God's Word as Christ has been revealed in His Word. So if we are going to stand having our loins girt about with truth, oh, yeah, I'm saved, I just stand in my salvation. No, that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying... Understand who Jesus is. Grow in your knowledge of who Jesus is. And the more you know of Him, the more prepared you are, and the more so you will live your life totally dependent in His sufficiency. Because recognize this. The more I see of Him, the more I grow in Him, the more I see the truth of myself and understand that I am absolutely insufficient. But the more I understand how insufficient I am, the more that magnifies that He is all-sufficient. So why would I stand in anything other? Why would I attempt to make a stand? Why would I attempt to face a fight? Why would I attempt to enter into a daily battle and conflict in any other thing than the truth of who Jesus is and what He has done? I stand a man before you this morning Let me be truthful. I stand a man before you this afternoon who is victorious, but it has nothing to do with me or what I've done. And even my knowledge of Christ is not what gives me the victory. The knowledge I have of Christ helps me to understand the victory that God has already given me. Why would I not want to know Him? Why would I not want to grow in Him? For it is Christ who is my victory. Let us stand ready and prepared for the spiritual war in which we are engaged because of the truth of who Jesus is, because of the truth of what Jesus has done, and because of the truth of our position God has provided us in Jesus Christ. Everything we need is provided in Jesus Christ, for He is all sufficient. Let me conclude as I did through our study of Galatians so many times with these words. Either Jesus Christ is all-sufficient, or he is not sufficient at all. And I say to you, he is all-sufficient. So stand.